We have been uh, walking through the book of Revelation here as the church and uh, have uh, take it, we took a little break uh, for Easter, but we are back in the book of Revelation and uh, we are going to finish up. Uh, we've got just a few chapters left, maybe the most glorious chapters in all the scripture. And so uh, in God's providence, I get to finish up these most glorious chapters in the book of Revelation and then go on sabbatical. Uh, so very excited uh, to finish up this book uh, before that happens. And uh, Hunter and I have been planning quite a bit. Uh, Hunter's taking the lead on planning our uh, summer sermon series. Uh, and uh, we're really excited about some of the things that God's going to do here at City Hope over the summer. So uh, you will all be in good hands. Uh, but we are very excited about that. So uh, but today we're in Revelation 19, and so uh, we just finished, right? Last Sunday was Easter, which is the culmination of Holy Week. Uh, and if you celebrate uh, and follow along with the story throughout the week, uh, there really is a lot of up and down emotions. We start with Palm Sunday, where they recognize Jesus as king and hail the king, the king of kings. But by Friday, that same crowd is calling to crucify the king. And on Friday at our Good Friday service, we looked at the crucified king. And yet our king does not stay crucified. He is resurrected. And so we looked at the resurrected king last Sunday. And then, if you continue on in the gospel story and, and know the rest of the story, Jesus is around his disciples, and then he ascends into heaven as the ascended king. And then what? Where do we go from there? Well, we've been looking at a vision that John has had, uh, multiple visions that John has had, looking into the throne room of heaven and seeing the glorified king. And if you are to look at the glorified king Jesus, uh, the beginning of Revelation, that first vision that we saw of king Jesus, uh, is one place. But, but Revelation 19 might be the high point of seeing the glorified king Jesus. And so it really does uh, fit well within uh, the, the week that we've been looking at. What does the glorified King Jesus, what, what is he like? And what do we do in response to that? Um, remember, Revelation is primarily not about figuring out a timeline for Jesus to return or to look at modern events to figure out where they are at, and you know, I did show you one uh, detailed chart, but not like to chart it out, you know, like conspiracy theory style with, with uh, lines everywhere, right? Like that's not what the book of Revelation is designed to do. It's the revelation of King Jesus. It's to show you who Jesus is and what he's like, and to cause the church then to say, we want to be with King Jesus, not with Babylon. And we have looked a lot over these last few chapters at the contrast between Babylon, the empire of this world, and the church. And how do we function as the church under King Jesus? Well, the best way for us to function as the church under King Jesus is to get an accurate picture of who Jesus is. And that's what John gives us this, this, uh, in Revelation 19. So we're going to do this a little differently as we walk through this book. We're actually going to hit the center of Revelation 19, this vision that John has of Jesus. And then we'll go back and finish the second half and go back 
then to the first part of the book, so, or first part of the chapter. So we're going to ha- kind of hit right in the center first uh, and then move on from there. So Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open. And again, remember, then I saw is just this is the next vision I'm seeing, not necessarily chronological. When we hear then, we think chronological. But for John, it's just describing to you the next vision that he saw. Right? So not necessarily chronological. Then I saw heaven open, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a winepress. And on his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of Kings, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Some translations say... uh, on his robe, at his thigh, or on his robe, and on his thigh. So Jesus potentially is tatted up on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is a glorious picture of Jesus. He is described as faithful and true. Remember that he, we have just seen in Revelation 18 the judgment that was unleashed upon Babylon. And so to call him faithful and true right after this is to say that his judgment on Babylon is faithful. It is right. It is true that Jesus is a right judge, which is exactly what that eyes as flames of fire, right? That's metaphor for Jesus in his righteous judgment. The flames of fire in the eyes is this picture of judgment. He wages righteous war. We said Babylon's going to be destroyed. Babylon will be judged. It will not end well for Babylon. And remember, if we live in a place in which Jesus is not physically on the throne, we live in Babylon, right? So like we live in Babylon, and Babylon's not going to last to the end. Babylon will be judged. He has many crowns on his head, right? Remember, one of the pictures that we saw earlier is the beast well, there's multiple beasts, right? But one of them had ten crowns on its head. Jesus has many crowns. Innumerable number of crowns. Just many. Way more than ten. He's the true king. Remember, the beast is trying to imitate Christ. To fake it as king. But Jesus is the true king. He has many crowns. He has this name, that no one else knows but himself, which sounds a bit odd. We're like, what does that mean exactly? Well, mystery, typically in the Bible, is not something that is like hidden to never be revealed, but something that is hidden to be revealed, right? So when the Bible talks about mystery or things that are hidden, it means something that is going to be revealed. And so it's not necessarily this uh, like hidden forever sort of secret name that Jesus has, but this idea that it will be revealed, right? There is uh, talk of this earlier of uh, the name, right, is, is written on their forehead, the people of God, right? We've got, uh, the, the, there's the image of being marked by the mark of the beast. 
uh, on the forehead or being marked with the name of God on the forehead. Again, both of them metaphorically speaking for who do you belong to? And so this name will be revealed, right? It's not this hidden thing, but it is this idea that Jesus is far more mysterious, far more glorious than we can possibly imagine. Right? Remember what the psalmist said in our call to worship. Even the strongest angel has nothing on the glory of God. And we're going to see a pretty strong angel here in a moment. John says in 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. That's a pretty strong angel, I think. He's standing in the sun, right? Like, not being consumed, standing in the sun. That's pretty glorious. He's got nothing on the king of glory. Jesus. This name, which is so mysterious, this person who is so mysterious, his depth cannot be plumbed. He has a robe dipped in blood. Uh, Typically, if you are showing up somewhere and a guy shows up to wage war against you and he's got a robe dipped in blood, I would suggest running the opposite direction. Uh, It's typically not a good sign that you're going to win. But the question for us in this is, Whose blood is it dipped in? The text doesn't really say, but given what we've seen of Jesus throughout the book of Revelation, this is not his enemy's blood. This is his blood. He is the lamb who was slain. He has a robe dipped in his own blood because the way in which he conquers is through his own death. His title is the word of God. Again, John, who wrote this, also wrote the Gospel of John, who begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word became flesh. And now the Word who became flesh was crucified and then resurrected and is now glorified. The Word of God in all of its glory. Displayed. He's he's surrounded by this army. Uh, likely this army is not an angelic army, but the army or the, the, the saints gathered together, us, the people of God, gathered together because those who are uh, wearing uh, white linen throughout the book of Revelation is always the church. It's always the saints. And so this is likely us gathered together on white horses in the army of God. Now, for some of us, that doesn't sound very exciting. For others, it sounds really exciting, right? Like, yes, let's get on a horse, come on. But we're going to see in just a moment exactly how this war takes place. But we are gathered together with our king, who's on a horse in front of us. He has a sword, but the sword is not in his hand. It's coming out of his mouth. Right, again, which is why it's really hard for us to take this This uh, text, literally, right? This is apocalyptic literature. There's metaphor upon metaphor, right? If we take every piece of this literally, Jesus also has seven eyes because he had seven eyes earlier. So he's got seven eyes and a giant sword coming out of his mouth, which is pretty impressive, but probably not accurate, right? This is a metaphor that the sword in which he is going to strike down the nations is coming out of his mouth and not in his hands. It's very important. It's in his mouth. This war is actually going to be no war at all. This war in which we 
a lot of ink has been spilled by a lot of Christians. A lot of thought has gone into this about what this battle of Armageddon will look like. We already saw in a previous vision, right, this final battle. Remember, this, this repeating visions, right? There's like seven looking at the same exact set of events, right? And looking at it from different angles. We've already seen this battle happen in another spot. And there was no battle at all. It was just over. Because Jesus said it was over. It's exactly what we're going to see here. Because the sword is not in his hand. It's coming out of his mouth. Jesus will win without a fight. He's going to win by the word of his mouth. Now, this doesn't mean that there's no judgment. There certainly will be judgment. It just means that God's ways and Babylon's ways are not the same. It's very clear. He will release the furious wrath of God. That's what he says, right? He's going to release the wrath of God like juice from a wine press. Which harkens back to a pretty terrifying image we saw of judgment a few chapters ago. Right? In which the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God was put out upon all who are opposed to God. And so, he, he will have judgment, but it's not going to be like Babylon's judgment. And then again, on his robe and on his thigh, it says, King of kings, Lord of lords. If there is a king, Jesus is a greater king. If there is a lord, if there is a ruler, Jesus is a more supreme ruler and lord. He is king of kings and lords of, lord of lords. Now, is this the way you see Jesus? Now, I'm not talking about a, a toxic sort of hyper-masculine way of defining Jesus as typically is defined by us, right? He's on this war horse and uh, we've got this, this thing, right? Not, not talking about that, but as truly King of kings and Lord of lords, is that how you see Jesus? Because he is that, right? He's not the crucified king anymore. Yes, he was the crucified king. He, he was the lamb that was slain. He still appears to be the lamb that is slain. And yet he is glorified. This same Jesus, he is in the fullness of his glory. And he's a king. You know, we don't have a lot of relationship with kings in our culture, right? It's, it really seems to be a thing of the past for us. But a king is not a democratic leader. It's not like taking our opinions and suggestions on how to run his kingdom. No, he's king. He's supreme. Sometimes we don't treat Jesus as king that way. We're like, hey, we got some suggestions that we'd like to put in the suggestion box for how the kingdom ought to be run. Or, actually, we know your decree, but we're going to do it our way anyway. Friends, he is king of kings. If you wouldn't do that with an earthly king, why would you do that with the king of kings? He is supreme. He is glorious in all. He has all power. He has all knowledge. He has all justice. He is also full of all goodness. I recently uh, have taken up, for a long time I have struggled to read fiction uh, because I was not a great reader growing up, but then uh, when I met Jesus and God revealed himself through a book, I started reading a lot more. Uh, and so I started reading a lot more, read mostly nonfiction for most of my adult life, but have really 
loved getting into fiction and reading story. And so I'm finally working my way through C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of, or uh, uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia books, all of them. Uh, and it just is so fitting. I just recently finished The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And when they meet Aslan, right, or, or when they're about to meet Aslan, Susan says this, Aslan is a lion? Or no, sorry, one of the beavers. Aslan is a lion? The lion. The great lion. Oh, says Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, some of us have this view of Jesus that is all-powerful. He's the king of kings, but he's not good. We don't have a problem with the power side of Jesus. We just don't want to come near him because we're not sure that he's good. We flee from him. We see God primarily as judge, right? So this view of God as judge, king of kings, lord of lords, we don't have a problem with that. We just don't want anything to do with him. We'd like to stay far away from him. We, we are a little afraid of meeting a lion. We see God as harsh with us or nitpicky. He's going after us for fun. He's kind of a cosmic killjoy. And it leads to a shame that we experience and a hatred of ourselves. Because if this is God primarily, this is primarily how God works, then this is, we, we, we don't really fit that very well. We can't really stand before him very well. And so we must experience shame and hatred of ourselves. Sometimes we get this view from the church because we talk about God's judgment, and so we emphasize those things sometimes, and, and that's how we pick this up. Sometimes we get it from abuse that we've suffered or sins of others against us, and we see God as not being good, and we blame those sins of others or the abuse that we've suffered on ourselves because we see God as judge. Some of us have a different view of Jesus. A view of Jesus that his goodness doesn't really matter because good or not, he has no power. We have a view of him that's far too safe. And if we have a view of Jesus that's far too safe, we'll end up fighting Jesus. We're going to see uh, the armies of Babylon against Jesus here in a moment, but we end up fighting against him. Now, we might not fight against him by aligning ourselves with Babylon in their fight against King Jesus, but we functionally fight against Jesus because our view of him is too safe. It doesn't matter whether he's good or not. We just, we just, he's too safe. He's too easily overrun by us. We fight against him. Certainly one way in which we do this is denying the existence or the divinity of Jesus. Right? We could deny the existence of Jesus or his divinity, which is kind of like denying the existence of Australia just because you haven't been there. Right? Nothing about you believing or not believing in Australia changes the existence of Australia. And Australia working for me but not for you doesn't really work if you get on a plane and head to Australia. It better be there, otherwise you're not landing in a good place. 
Right? It better be there. This is Jesus. He's real. He's alive. He lived on this earth. We have great historical record of him, not just of his existence, but of his death and of his resurrection, like we talked about last week. And here, we have a vision of him in glory. This is the real Jesus as he is right now in glory. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is who he is. But there's other ways that we as Christians, right, that may be primarily a a non-Christian way of seeing Jesus as too safe, but there's other ways we as Christians have too safe a view of Jesus. One is that we just ignore the law. We completely ignore his commands. Friends, we just saw it. Jesus is king of kings. He is not life coach. It's not what his, his title said on his robe. King of kings. He has a law that he has given us. Now, that has to be informed by all of scripture. His law is good. It is actually good for us to live in it. But it still is law. He still is a king. We fight against him and have too safe a view of Jesus when we say, I know best. Like, I know you have these laws, these rules, these commands, but I actually know best how my life should function. So I don't need to consult the law. I don't need to consult the scriptures. I know best how my life should go. Or we have too cheap a view of grace. It's okay, because God is gracious, so I can do whatever I want. God will forgive There's no real fear of the Lord there. There's no feeling that Susan has when she finds out Aslan is a lion that's like, oh, wait a second. I'm not sure I want to meet a lion. Is that how we feel about Jesus? Because he's really the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We don't give all of ourselves to him in worship. We don't acknowledge or we don't give our lives to him, we acknowledge him and use him when it's good and convenient for us. It's far too safe a view of Jesus. We don't give up our comfort or sacrifice in any way for the kingdom or for the king. Too safe a view of Jesus. Ironically, actually, a a hyper-masculine, toxic wartime view of Jesus is also too safe a view of Jesus. (laughs) Because it's not who he actually is, and it's something that fits our conceptions of who he is. One that would justify our hatred against enemies or violence or use the means of Babylon or the empire to accomplish our purposes. We have to understand this scripture that we see of Jesus in light of the rest of the book and the rest of the Bible, which talks about victory, who is victorious and who wages war. It's King Jesus, and he does so by the sword in his mouth, by his word. And victory is those who align themselves with Jesus and are willing to endure suffering for his sake, right? Not to kill, but to be killed for his sake. Well, how does this battle go if we fight against Jesus? Well, we see a picture of it here in Revelation 19. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, 
shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky. Come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, and strong warriors, of horses and their riders, of all humanity, both free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who had worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. And the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. This is a truly terrifying picture. Similar to the picture we saw earlier of the river of blood. The terrifying picture is truly horrifying. And it's meant to be horrifying. It's apocalyptic literature. It's meant to wake us up. Babylon will lose. Do not stay on her side. He is just and good, but not safe. And he has victory, as you see in this text, by his word. You see, the armies of the beast are all gathered together to fight against him, but there's no fight that happens. It just says the beast and the false prophet were captured and thrown alive into the lake of burning sulfur. Without a fight, there is no power that can match the word of Jesus. Nothing. What he says goes. There is no power that can match against him. There is not this epic struggle that's going to happen between good and evil. And maybe evil might win in a moment. But no, Jesus wins. End of story. Makes me think of the hymn by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress. In the third verse it says this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One word from King Jesus, and the battle's over. We're all killed by the word that comes from his mouth, by the sword that comes from his mouth, the word of Jesus. The word of Jesus will strike down all the enemies of God. What that means for us, friends, as God's people is, we do not need to fear the strategies of Babylon to advance their kingdom because Jesus will win in the end with one little word. We don't need to adopt the strategies of Babylon to build the kingdom. We need to adopt the strategies of the king. And that includes suffering now. That includes loving now our neighbor unto death. Actually, in fact, not just our neighbor, our enemy unto death. Why would we endure such things? Why would we endure death to ourselves, our enemy being victorious, our own suffering now? Why would we endure that even if we have the power to stop it? Because Jesus is going to accomplish this thing with just a word. 
Because Jesus is victorious because he's the king of kings. And we go, what did it say earlier in Revelation? Wherever the lamb goes. We follow the lamb wherever he goes. One day that will mean riding on white horses as he conquers the world. Yes. But right now it means loving God and loving neighbor even when it costs us. Even when it costs us. Even when it costs us everything. Because we follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Why would we do that? Because we have a view of Jesus that is both all-powerful and all-good. Not safe, but the true and good King. And when we have a view of Jesus that He is all-powerful and all-good, you know what it it makes us do? It makes us flee to Him. Not flee from Him, or fight him, but flee to him. It has the effect on us that once, just like the children in Narnia, once they view Aslan as he is, they come near to him. They want to grab hold of his mane to walk with him, to be close to him, because they realize he is not safe, but he is good and all-powerful. Let's back up to the beginning of this chapter in Revelation. After this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, Praise the Lord! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. Remember, that's Babylon. He has avenged the murder of his servants. And again, their voices rang out, Praise the Lord! The smoke from that city ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and worshiped God who was sitting on the throne. They cried out, Amen, praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. Then I heard, a sh- uh, heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words that come from God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, no, don't worship me. I am a servant of God, just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God. For the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. John sees this angel who is so glorious that John is tempted to worship him. And Jesus is far more glorious. Now, the beginning of this chapter has some things that we've talked about a little bit before, but some sort of like imprecatory psalms praising God for the way in which judgment was executed on Babylon. And sometimes we struggle with that, but I would urge us to not judge the imprecatory psalms of faithful saints who have suffered death from a position of comfort. We haven't faced that. 
So it's easy for us in our culture, in our place, to judge those psalms and say, like, that's not, that's not appropriate, and yet we haven't suffered in the way that some saints have suffered. So let's not judge those from a place, position of comfort. But also, if you notice, the praise is on the justice of God, not on the su- suffering of the wicked. This is not some sort of, uh, like, w- like uh, demonizing of Babylon or a... Uh, uh, glorying in their death it is a praising of the justice of God on display what do we do when we see Jesus rightly we flee to him all who fear him all who fear him come near praise our God from the least to the greatest real fear of the Lord that is described throughout all the scriptures, is fleeing to God because he's good. Recognizing him in all of his power, in all of his glory, and fleeing to him because he is good. And fleeing to him to come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. The wedding feast of the Lamb. This glorious feast that will take place in which we as the bride of Christ will come together with Jesus our groom, in which we will eat epic food. I mean, we had a really good pitch in last week, right? That food was really good. Even better than that. Even better than that. That without sin. A glorified table, glorified saints gathering together, feasting in honor of the Lamb. This wedding feast of the Lamb that we are there together for. And it says that his bride has prepared herself. How how has his bride prepared herself? Well, it says, She has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. Immediately, some of you are like, okay, so the best way to prepare for God is to do the right thing. You've got to do the right thing. Good deeds. But wait a second. I thought this whole thing was grace. Right? It's the tension that we see throughout all of the New Testament of God's grace and our work in preparing for the kingdom. It feels like a tension. There really is no tension, right? Because you're preparing because you're the bride. You're preparing because you're the bride. No amount of preparation will make someone a bride, right? Just because you like decide, I'm going to be a bride, I'm going to prepare as a bride, that doesn't make you a bride. That's not how that works, right? You can't just get dressed up like a bride and just declare, I'm a bride. That's not how it works. So no amount of preparation to be the bride of Christ is going to make us the bride of Christ. It's only because he has made us his bride. It's only because he has made us his bride. And even that, what does it say? That the fine linens represent the good deeds of God's holy people? But what did it just say? She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. So even the good works that the church does are a gift from God to us. It's all of grace. It is all of grace. 
But because it's all of grace and because you're already the bride of Christ, if you are looking to Jesus by faith, that means that you prepare. It means that you prepare, right? That's what brides do. They prepare for their wedding feast. And that's what we are. We are the bride of Christ together. And so we prepare for our wedding feast. It's ironic, actually, isn't it? That the place in which Jesus is most warlike in the scriptures, in this description, the call for the church is to prepare herself like a bride, not like a warrior, like a bride. Because Jesus wins the battle. So how are we to prepare? Well, first, we have to respond to the invitation. It says, blessed are all who have received the invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb. If you are here this morning and you have breath, you are receiving the wedding invitation to the wedding supper, or the invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb. It is available to you. Come to the Lord Jesus, and it is yours. Repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is good. He is strong. He is powerful. He is faithful. Flee to him. Flee to him. Respond to this invitation. The next way we prepare is by worshiping him. It's interesting, isn't it, that immediately after talking about this wedding feast of the Lamb, the Servant that's there, that's announcing these things, this angel, John is so tempted to worship, right? Because he's so glorious. And what does the angel immediately do? No, 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 no. That's not what we're doing here. It doesn't matter how glorious I am. We worship Jesus and him only. You want to be the bride of Christ? Worship Jesus. Worship Jesus. Nothing else. If even an angel which is so incredibly glorious. I don't know that this is the same angel that's standing in the sun, but you know, there's angels that stand in the sun. That's pretty glorious. Compare that to the things we actually give ourselves to worship. The things that we give our lives to, to worship. They're not even close to the glory of an angel that can stand in the sun. And Jesus is far more glorious than that. Give your heart to King Jesus and worship him. And then we prepare ourselves with the good deeds of God's holy people. Our motivation to do that is to be like Jesus, to be a beautiful bride for Christ who loved us so much. We get to go to this wedding feast of the Lamb, right? The reason we deny ourselves now, the reason we deny ourselves the good things in this world that, that uh, cause us to to ignore Jesus is because we get to feast in the best possible way later. We get to feast with King Jesus for all eternity. We are motivated by love, ultimately. Anytime I, one of my favorite pictures of the church in the New Testament is that of being Christ's bride. And anytime I read this in the text, I think of the opportunities I've had to, to officiate weddings. And my favorite part of the wedding is the very beginning when the bride comes in the room. And right when she first walks in the room, my immediate after viewing the bride in all her glory, 
my immediate place is to turn and to look at the groom and just watch his reaction. Some are just weeping like crazy. Many of you were weeping. It's fine, you can admit it. But there's this huge smile even in the midst of the weeps. And there's this glorious image of this groom who's just adoring his bride. And the reason I look at that and the reason I love that is because it gives us just the tiniest window into how Jesus feels about you. He is our good and faithful bridegroom. Meaning that's how he sees you. He adores you. He is preparing you to come into this feast and to be this beautiful bride. He longs to sing over you. He wants to be near you. He loves you. He is so enamored with you that he is going to move heaven and earth to make sure he comes to get you. Even when you run the other way. Even when you fail to prepare yourself as the bride, he says, no, 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 I love you anyway. Here, here's fresh clothes to wear. Here, I'm coming after you anyway. I know sometimes you like to look like Babylon, but I'm coming after you. You're mine. I have made you my own. I adore you. So what we need to see in this text is the glorified king who is glorious, more glorious than anything else. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and he, in that state, adores you. Give your life to him. If that's true, we can lay down anything to follow the lamb wherever he goes. Because he's so good. Because he loves us so dearly. And he's given up everything for us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come to you now and we pray that, God, you would be glorified in our lives. That you would give us a right picture of who you are. That we would see you in all your glory and know that you are good. God, would you remove from us too safe a view of you. We wouldn't be satisfied with a safe view of you. We would be satisfied only with a right view of you. In which we would see you in all your glory and know your deep love for us in the midst of your glory. Jesus, would you be honored in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.